This is Tom Wallace. I'm the managing partner of Florida Funders, and welcome to Florida Funders Angel Investing in Florida podcast. For those of you who are new to our podcast, we do these a couple times a month, and we go out and look for experienced and uh, interesting investors, and we interview them because we think we're all in this together, and we can all learn from each other. For those of you who are not familiar with Florida Funders, we are a hybrid between a venture capital firm and a crowdfunding platform. So we're always scouring the state of Florida looking for the most exciting new companies coming up and investing in, in entrepreneurs. And we'd like to say we're finding, funding, and building the next generation of great tech companies here in Florida. We do some investing outside of Florida, but we're pretty much Florida-centric. And a lot of the companies we invest in are either, if they're not headquartered here, they're, they're coming here or have a significant presence here. We'd like to say we're on a mission to change Florida from Sunshine State to Startup State. And I'm really excited about our guest today. Our guest is joining us from New York City. His name is David Goldberg. David, welcome. Excited to have you on the show. And why don't you tell our audience about your background? Hey, Tom. Thanks for having me. So while, while I am normally in New York City in, in this COVID time, I'm actually bunkered down in the suburbs of New Jersey. Okay. Very exciting. Yeah, so my, my background is, is probably one of the more random trajectories into venture. So I, I started my career coming out of both law school and business school as an assistant district attorney in Brooklyn, New York. Oh, wow. uh, I was a criminal prosecutor, which when we have more time another day, I have some really interesting stories I'm sure I can share with you. I'll bet. Yeah. From there, I went more into traditional finance, spending a couple of years at Merrill Lynch, then went at Jefferies, the global investment bank. While at Jefferies, I started what at the beginning was really more of a side project and turned into my full-time gig, a startup called Freshneck, which was a collaborative consumption men's fashion sharing company. So we basically rented out on a subscription basis, all types of men accessories that didn't have a fit component. So ties and bow ties, pocket squares, watches, jewelry, sunglasses, ultimately building that business for a little over three years and selling it in 2013. From there, you know, I, I got pretty deep in the New York tech ecosystem and startup ecosystem. It was a lot smaller back then. Got to know you know, really people on both sides of the table, founders and investors, ultimately meeting my now partner, Ryan Friedman. And we really had the vision for building out the type of venture capital firm that we wish we had partnered with as first-time founders. And when did you start Corrigent Ventures? And uh, what size fund is it? And what do you, what kind of investing you guys do? Yes, I think it's two weeks from now will be my six-year anniversary. So we started investing in uh, early, mid-2014, it was mostly GP capital. We carved out $20 million, more of a proof of concept. We then launched a traditional outside capital fund in 2018, did our final close in 2019, and ended up at $36.5 million. So we're about halfway deployed through that fund right now. And what kind of tech investing do you, do you guys focus on? What, what would you say is your sweet spot? Early stage only, and, and really predominantly seed stage. So we like to be the first institutional check anywhere between 750K and a million dollars in what today is a two to $3 million seed round. It's very active, hands-on, we'll set terms, take board seats, you know, and really be sort of the, the first phone call at the table. We like to invest in companies that we consider are reshaping the real world. So things at the intersection of the, the digital and physical world. So consumer products and services, marketplaces, e-commerce infrastructure, supply chain, and real estate technology. And do you focus uh, just in New York City? No, we'll invest really anywhere in North America. Now, you know, just given 
proximity and networks. I'd say about 50% of our portfolio, which is now 56 companies, hails from New York. Our two second biggest markets are Los Angeles and Boston. And then there's a couple in San Francisco and then some one-offs in Chicago, Minneapolis, including one in Florida. Okay. Where's the one in Florida? I'm just curious. Class Wallet. Oh, Class Wallet. That's right. I knew that. We're in that deal too. We share share together. So you're looking at deals a lot. And so how many deals do you look at for everyone that you decide to fund? Oh, man. So last year we looked at 1,450 deals and we did eight or nine. We have added also a third partner. So that number could easily jump closer to 2,000 and maybe we'll do one extra deal. So, you know, you, you can do the math. It's a pretty, pretty tight funnel. So you're obviously very, very selective and you, you know what you're looking for. Talk to us about that. Is, is it you're doing early stage stuff? I'd, I'd like to understand how early are you doing pre-revenue deals or, or not so much? And then what, what, are you, what are you looking for in these, these very sol- few that you select to fund? Yeah. So in terms of stage, like there really isn't too early for us now. There's also a balance between the experience of the entrepreneur and how early they are, right? The, the better the entrepreneur, the more experienced he or she is, the more risk we're willing to take and take them a little bit earlier Whereas maybe if you're a bit younger, first-time entrepreneur, we'd want to see a little bit more fleshed out that we don't need revenue or certain traction on that sense. What we do like to see, though, is a pretty fleshed out vision around the product and most of the core team already locked in to to be ready to go full-time. We're not really investing in too many solo founders who have not built out any type of team around them. And what do you look for in those solo founders or teams? What do you what do you look, especially the founder or co-founder? What do you look for in those folks? It's really hard to like nail it down to one thing. You know, it's all the obvious things, right? You want smarts, you want drive and hustle and perseverance. But I'd say really where we probably lean in a little bit heavier than some other firms is understanding the specific advantage that this entrepreneur has in the specific market that he or she is tackling. Now that can come from a unique insight from past experience. Maybe he or she worked at a customer or an incumbent in the space, but something that they're able to take with them that gives them a competitive advantage over all of the other incredible entrepreneurs that are out there likely working on something similar. Yeah. So uh, maybe give us an example of a deal you did recently and what you found very attractive about that particular founder or founders. One investment that we did a couple of months ago is a company called Arrive Outdoors. They're a Los Angeles-based company. They are an outdoor gear rental company, right? So if you want to rent camping equipment, skiing equipment, something along those nature, you know, instead of buying it and spending thousands of dollars and lugging it to a camping site or a mountain, you can rent it, have it either shipped to your home, your Airbnb, or you know, maybe to actually the actual grounds where you're going to be. Now A broader theme that we've been thinking about really for about two years now is thinking about consumer companies that have non-direct-to-consumer distribution channels, right? As we've seen acquisition channels rise through Facebook, Google, and, and the like, looking for proprietary channels. So in this case, the CEO really had a background and a superpower in B2B partnerships. So here, the competitive advantage wasn't knowledge around camping or skiing, but it was the strategy as well as the traction in building out some of the partnerships where they can get proprietary and often exclusive 
distribution through either the camping ground or ski mountains themselves. So he, he had a, some deep domain expertise and connections within the industry. She. She. Sorry. Yes. Yep. We mentioned we share Class Wallet as a portfolio company for the funders. What got you excited about Class Wallet? And what do you think about that company? Yeah, I, I think ultimately every investment really starts with two things. It's a market that has clear problems and opportunities. And then a founder who checks all of the boxes is really passionate, really knowledgeable about their space and someone that we are proud to partner with You know, for 5 to 10 years. And I'd say kind of right off the bat, Jamie, as the CEO and founder there, was, was someone that checked all of those boxes and yeah, we were excited. He understood that market better than most, even better than us. I think that was an interesting investment and, and still proves to be in that we knew there was an issue. We knew there was a problem. We knew they'd be able to really get into that ecosystem and have a lot of spend take place on their platform. I think the real question, and still today that, that still needs a little bit more fleshing out is how well can you monetize that, right? There's sort of the, are you solving a problem? That's level one. Number two, can you then turn that into an incredible, scalable, profitable business? Yeah. Just for our listeners, Class Wallet is in the education space and they provide a way for teachers to buy school supplies and all that through a virtual wallet so they don't have to ex- save receipts and then turn them into their office to get reimbursed. And And uh, Jamie is, is, a, is a great founder and CEO. That kind of gets me thinking about, you know, this times we're in COVID, the COVID crisis. I mean, Obviously, this has affected some of our portfolio companies, I'm sure some of your portfolio companies, and we've been working with our portfolio companies to try to you know, figure out how they best navigate this, this new post-COVID, the new norm, whatever, whatever the new norm is, I don't think any of us know, but, and certainly a company like Class Wallet, who was in the education space, our schools got shut down. You know, was, was, were dramatically affected by this. I'm kind of curious as to, you know, your take on what you've done with your companies and how many of them were affected positively or some negatively and, you know, kind of how you, you guys are navigating through these unprecedented times we're in right now. Yeah, sure. So we, we spent really all of March doing triage, right? And we spent first the first week or two with our own internal operations, made sure that, you know, we're a six person team now all remote you know, making sure that we're on the same page, we're communicating, we had our tech stack ready to go. And then we spent the next couple of weeks both informing and educating and helping our portfolio companies, as well as getting the knowledge internally so we can make strategic decisions, right? And that's everything from where do we get offensive in terms of buying up ownership in companies that just want a little bit more security and runway? Mm-hmm. Where and how do we reserve some capital to get defensive for maybe some of those that are really struggling right now, but need a little bit more time. But we ultimately think the long-term prospects are still there. And then also, where do we have really hard discussions with founders where there's just not going to be any more capital? And and maybe that's because of company performance or just the the impact of COVID is too great for them to overcome. I think given um, our portfolio and the sectors we play in, you know, we're fortunate enough that there's certainly impact, but it's not a you know portfolio-wide destruction. You know, there's probably five or six companies in the real estate, travel, hospitality space that got hit a little bit harder. There's a couple in grocery delivery, alcohol delivery, telemedicine that are kind of having their moment. And, and yeah, especially happy. that alcohol delivery. <laughs> 
Yeah, I, I think uh, I can't believe that's going really well right now. They were actually on the news last week. I, I think they were up about four hundred percent month over month, which is uh, kind of crazy. But but unlike a lot of e-commerce industries that are late to sort of move online, I think alcohol penetration is still under ten percent done online. This yeah. has been a catalyst that they've been waiting for for a long time. Um, and then you have everybody else in the middle where. Maybe they're flat, maybe they're down 20%, maybe they're up a little bit. I think they are actually thinking more about the fundraising environments in the next three to 12 months than they are about the actual revenue impacts on their companies. Yeah, I think all of us are thinking about what what the next three to 12 months are going to look like from a fundraising and investor standpoint and a lot of unknowns there. I'm just curious on our side, we worked with a lot of our portfolio companies on the PPP loans, the payroll protection the federal money that was available. Quite a few of our companies applied for that and, and got funding. Did did you see the same with your companies? They did. And we did a lot of education on that. So I think the first week of call it true COVID impact and everyone was working from home, I believe it was the second or third week of March. You know, we hosted a couple of webinars with partners at law firms and some CFOs to help them navigate. I mean, as you can, as I'm sure you remember, it was pretty confusing time for startups. Many of them applied. We did have a couple who either withdrew their applications or actually sent the money back after a little bit more guidance came out around what hardship, I think, really meant and and potential liability. But ultimately, I I think it also was a lifeline to a couple of companies who really needed it to maintain the payroll, which which is, you know, these companies act pretty lean to begin with. So losing a couple of people here or there can, can take a major, major detriment to the company. We worked with a lot of our companies on that. And then, you know, what we, and I'm sure you probably went through this. I mean, you were talking about the triage, really looked at cash is going to be king. How much cash do you have? What's your runway? And can you cut your burn? I'm sure you, you kind of went through that same thing with your companies. And a lot of our companies, you know, did cut their burn and extend their runway and the PPP loan. It'll be interesting to see how much they have to pay back. Because as you know, that the idea of that was not to lay people off and not to cut jobs. And to the extent that they use that, they did cut their burn. You know, that part of the loan will not be forgiven, but still a very low interest loans. loan. So that's, that's kind of interesting. I always like to ask this question, like, what are your big misses? Did you have a big miss? Do you have a deal that you, you passed on that you look back on and, you know, has done really well? And that always makes for some good fodder for conversation. Do you have any of those? There are so many more to count. And just anecdotally, I know that there's even a ton that we barely even looked at that went on to kill it that I couldn't even remember. You know, like, we'll, we'll be looking through Salesforce. You know, we, we track everything. We'll be like, oh, wait a minute. We saw this company. They're now valued at a couple billion dollars. I remember one was uh, Canva, the collaborative design company. And like, we didn't even give it the time of day. Obviously, huge mistake. Um, and then there's a couple that we dug pretty deep into and ultimately made the wrong decision. One that comes to mind where I actually am a, I'm a happy customer as a company called The Farmer's Dog. They were really one of the pioneers in, call it, direct-to-consumer, fresh, human-grade pet food. Um, and really okay. just an incredible business as we've seen the shift of really how people and families treat their pets more like family members. Mm-hmm. Um, and as you can imagine, and, and I'm a testament to it, you know, we've now had two dogs since I started being a customer of that company like the metrics in the LTV of once you find something your dog likes, you do not get off of it. Yeah, I'd be afraid to tell you what I'm spending uh, every month on my dog. 
My dog is actually sitting at my feet right now as we're doing this, <laughs> and uh, I'm definitely in that club. And, and Chewy.com is a great local success story yeah. here in Florida that came out of Fort Lauderdale, uh, Ryan yeah. Cohen. That's a wonderful story. I agree with you. You know, the whole pet, that's a great space. We will spend anything on our dogs. My guy's 12 years old. He just had his knee, a knee replacement. I mean, I just went in a deep dive, both as a customer and an investor into the pet insurance market. Uh, I actually, I got a puppy 10 days ago. Oh, uh, wow. What kind? We lost our last one. Uh, it was a rescue that came up from Oklahoma. He looks to be some kind of shepherd hound mix. We don't know. Okay. Uh, but we got insurance because also for my last dog, I went through two ACL surgeries and cancer and, and that can really add up. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I think it's great you're rescuing a dog. Mine's a rescue as well. You know, as we look at the world, the new world that we're going to be facing this new normal, what opportunities do you see that presenting to you as an investor? It's a great question and, and not to skirt it, but we're really trying to think about what will be a real shift in behavior and what will sort of go back to as close to normal as, as we remember it. And, and I think the jury is still out on that, right? You know, mm-hmm. sure. one example is like, what does retail, brick and mortar retail look like? Like, what does travel look like? Now, I think over the next three, six, maybe even longer, it's going to not be a great space. It's going to be a very gradual back to normal if we ever get there. The real question is, a year from now, do we forget that this happened and people are out there shopping in stores and trying on things? Or is there a real shift to experiential, at-home, different type of footprint, really something that, that I can't even imagine right now? So I'm really keeping open mind space for what does the new normal look like? I don't think it's where we're sitting today in COVID. And I don't think it's where we were sitting just a couple months ago. I think it's some hybrid in between and it's going to be almost industry by industry. That being said, I think one of the spaces where there's been a shift that will only continue to go from here, one is around education. And that's both for adults in the workforce, children and sort of traditional college and everything in between, as well as remote work. I think we're going to start seeing a lot of tools and infrastructure and operating systems that will further catalyze what we're already seeing is people are opening their eyes and companies are opening their eyes. We're losing very little productivity, but saving a ton of cost and having a lot of happier workers. Yeah, that's, that's, that's interesting and fascinating. I agree with you. I, I think there's I, just even personally, I, I know that I tried Instacart very early on when they first came out. I hated it. It was, you know, they got half my order wrong and took forever and they charged me a lot of money. And I went back and tried it this time and, you know, I'd be more inclined to use it in the future. Speaking of retail, I definitely, everybody sees the retail's, you know, challenge right now. And that challenge is going to be for a while. We have a company we we are in the process of funding that helps high-end retailers, luxury retailers, stay in touch with their customers via text. And it's a it's a very exciting technology. And their main target, you might find that it's interesting, and the, the audience might, their main target right now is jewelers, right? And you think there's like, I don't know, 10,000 independent jewelers in the United States or something like that. It's a very fragmented industry. And, you know, they, they the last month, this really surprised, and this is a small company, I mean, under, under a million in uh, annual recurring revenue, ARR. The last month in in think about selling to jewelers last month, most of, most of them are all closed. They closed like $75,000 worth of new business. I was like, wow, you know, 
So I think that, you know, retail is going to change. I think, you know, remote work, I agree with all the things that you said. I, I think one of the things that we've looked at is, uh, you know, if you look at funds that started in like 2009, 2010, those vintage funds, they tended to perform pretty well or very well compared to funds that started in, in I'm using the, the last financial crisis. So I, I get, I, I want to ask you about that. So do you think as an investor post COVID, that the the pendulum is shifting. I've heard people that valuations are going to be better. It's going to be, it, let's face it, for the last few years, it's been a very founder-friendly environment for raising money. Valuations have continued to go up and all that, as we all know. W- what do you think that looks like coming out of this? I think, and we've already started to see, valuations will come down a little bit. I don't think it will be drastic. And if you look at the data, there's been a ton of capital raised by venture capital funds across sort of the entire spectrum of seed stage all the way through growth capital. So there's a lot of dry powder out there, a lot of corporate capital, private capital. So you're still going to have a bit of that frothy environment, especially in the markets like New York and San Francisco. Now, what excites me about sort of what's not that COVID itself is, is obviously exciting me, but one of the trends that we're seeing is sort of the further catalyst of um, sort of non-tier one tech markets kind of having their day, right? If I can't meet a team in person, if a San Francisco firm can't meet a team in person, then being there isn't as much an advantage. And maybe you'll see markets like Florida and Austin, which is making a bit of a resurgence, Toronto, get a little bit more traction in their sort of surge towards becoming real tech hubs. And I think part of what will come along with that is the lower valuations that are typically in the South, the Midwest, and really the non-coastal markets. Well, we're excited about that here in Florida and, and, and hopefully that um, you know, this, this benefits us. But I think, I think what we've seen in Florida already is, is uh, there's been over the last few years, we're getting more, a lot more traction I guess would be considered a tier two marketplace. And, you know, with things like Chewy and you probably have seven unicorns across the state now. ConnectWise here locally had a big exit, $1.6 billion. Nobi4 is a unicorn here locally, cybersecurity. So we're seeing, we're seeing that. And I think the more we see that, you know, obviously success breeds success. So we're, we're excited about that. In terms of the investments you've made, and thinking of uh, interesting stories, is there any investment, you know, we talked about the misses. Is there any investment that you've, I know you're only in it six years and you probably haven't had a ton of exits, but what is the most exciting or, or best mm-hmm. exit you've had? And is there any story behind that you'd like to share with our listeners? Yeah, so I think our, our most exciting companies have grown so much and it takes time that of course they haven't exited yet. So most of our true exits have been more mid-sized that are a little bit less exciting. I think the two companies that people often want to talk about, one is Compass, which is the technology-enabled real estate brokerage that's that's backed by SoftBank. They've raised over a billion dollars. I think their latest valuation was four to six billion. And the other one is Transfix, which is sort of a marketplace for long-haul trucking. They're often called the Uber for trucking. So they're connecting you know, shippers, Fortune 500 companies on one side with carriers and independent trucks on the other side. We invested... It was actually my first investment in mid-2014. They've gone on now to raise about $100 million from folks like Canvas and NEA, the Australian Sovereign Wealth Fund. Um, and their latest valuation is just shy of a billion dollars as well. 
And when you look back on those two investments, the founders, did you really like the idea? Did you really like the founder? What's What was the big big thing that you, you jumped yeah. on with those two? I, I think Transfix was, was more the sort of example of what we look for, right? It was obviously like a business model that people were excited about in a giant market, right? Like marketplaces, tens of billions of dollars in long haul trucking fees. So like it didn't take a leap of faith to understand that that was an exciting opportunity. That being said, we looked at a couple competitors, including one that had like the Silicon Valley resumes. It was three Stanford engineers. They were about a year ahead, had a couple million dollars raised. But we thought for this market, you really needed to understand the nuances of both sides of the marketplace. So when we looked at Transfix and the CEO there, Andrew McElroy, he had built his parents' traditional freight brokerage business to like a $40 million revenue business. And we thought he had an advantage in speaking to and building out product for both sides of the marketplace, which are very different customers. On one hand, you have chief logistics officers of Fortune 500 companies. On the other side, you have Joe Trucker, right? And understanding how do you build out the nuance of the product, things that maybe aren't even revenue generating, but like where are the rest stops, where are the local poker games, how do you track your miles? That's what starts the flywheel in the marketplace. So fast forward to today, you know, I gave you the numbers. Transfix is is doing some big numbers. The other uh, company that was ahead with the Stanford engineers went out of business a couple of years ago. Wow. Well, that has to make you feel good. We're running short on time. And I'm just in wrapping up here, David, I'd be curious, anything you want to share with our, our listening audience in terms of from an investor, if you were, if you were an angel investor, an active angel investor, I mean, you're an investor, obviously, but you're more uh, institutional. Any advice, any words of wisdom you'd like to share lessons learned? Our audience is always interested in that. I think it's just, um, basically the same advice I have for founders, for institutional fund managers, for angel investors, right? It's be really thoughtful about your plan why that plan is right for you, even though it may not be right for somebody else, and stick to it. I, I think we sometimes, especially in the investing world, there's this culture of like always doing more and different before you actually perfect sort of your core practice. So if you come from a certain industry and you think you have an advantage in a network there, just do that for a period of time and master it before you start chasing shiny objects and start looking at different stages or different sectors. Focus, <laughs> right? Not to, don't try to be all things to all people. Uh, well, that's great advice. David, thank you so much. I uh, really appreciate your time today. Continued success. And to our listening audience, thank you for joining us. We'll be back again in another few weeks with another podcast. This has been Tom Wallace, uh, Florida Funders. And if you're interested in learning more about Florida Funders, just go out to our website, floridafunders.com. And we always have deals up there, exciting companies if you're interested in becoming an investor and happy to have you join our community. So thanks again, David. Have a great day and all the best. Thank you, Tom. This was fun. Okay, take care.